Welcome to Opsy, a podcast for people doing Opsy work in tech. I'm your host, Carol Griffin, and every month I dig into what Opsy work really is by talking to an operations pro who has something really cool to teach us. In a traditional part of ops like HR or finance, or a newer specialty like no-code ops or marketing ops. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we're talking to operations leader Barrett Brooks. Barrett built his operational skills in customer success and marketing before taking on the COO role at ConvertKit, a famously remote company in the email marketing space. He retired from that role last fall, and that's when I came across him. He embarked on a rather public job search for his next career move, which is something that I don't think we see a lot of folks do, especially non-technical people like all of us in operations. It was through this process that he found his current role as COO at Good Coffee. Barrett has approached his whole career in such a strategic way, from the roles he's taken to the skills and capacities that he's built. I know his approach is one that all of us ops people will appreciate and learn a lot from. So let's dive in. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us today, Barrett. Really excited uh, to dive into your kind of career path and all your thoughts about ops. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your career path so far and how you got into operations. How I got into operations. All right. Well, I'll go back to the beginning of my career. I studied accounting and finance, double majors in college, and I had a certificate in organizational leadership and came out and wanted to be a management consultant, I thought. (laughs) And I did that for just under a year before I realized that it was mostly one big political game that I didn't want to be the winner of. And so I got out of that. I started my first company, actually doing kind of career coaching and consulting for young professionals who wanted to transition to more meaningful careers than Fortune 500 pathways. That company failed and I learned a ton in the process and that kind of set me on my path to where I am today. So I went to work leading customer success and then marketing and growth at a company called Fizzle, where we provided online education for people, what we now know as creators. At the time, we didn't really Mm -hmm. have a word for it, but people starting small online businesses around one of the things that they love in life or or a set of expertise that they have. Uh, And then I moved on from Fizzle to go to ConvertKit, which is an email marketing platform also serving creators. Um, It's really grown into a a full marketing platform over time. And I was there for five years, started off leading marketing, and then uh, about a year and a half in, switched over to COO. I was our first COO there and did that for about three and a half years from three and a half million in revenue to about 28 and a half million in revenue over that time. And then from there, I kind of took a career hiatus over the past six months. I was just very tired. Leading through the pandemic was exhausting. Um, I had been in my role for a while through a pretty hard stage of growth. And the company was just entering a different phase of kind of settling into its stage of scale. And I was looking for something else. So I spent some time doing a lot of writing, especially focused on climate tech and kind of that whole ecosystem, which I'm still doing today. Uh, Long form Mm -hmm. essays about climate tech companies, kind of breaking them down, looking at their business models and exploring that side of things. But I also have a full-time job that I started not too long ago as COO of a company called Good Coffee. And we have five retail locations in and around Portland, Oregon. And then we have a a decent-sized wholesale business and a growing e-commerce business, all of which I'll be overseeing in my new role. Wow. So pretty different company or like product than going from email marketing to coffee and like a physical good. So excited to dig into that. But I think first, you know, we have a lot of people in the Opsi community who kind of 
I think, think of themselves as having fallen into operations, but you come from a pretty traditional background with accounting. But then I heard you just slip in there that you started in marketing. So I'm interested, how did you get from accounting to marketing? And I mean, that's such an interesting and valuable skill set, I would imagine, for a CEO, especially at an email marketing company. Yes. Well, I can say that while I studied accounting and finance and I was decent at it, I absolutely hated it. Oh, okay. So <laughs> my, um, my grades weren't always the best, except for when I actually applied myself. And that was less often than some of my classmates, just because it wasn't interesting to me. It felt mm-hmm. up, felt like a bunch of made up rules about how the world's supposed to work created by humans. And I like human interaction, human psychology, just like the fundamental baseline for everything of all of our, our kind of interactions and how we operate as people. And I felt like marketing really got at the heart of that. And so marketing was interesting to me because it could be numbers driven. It could be creative. It could be brand. It could be conversion optimization. It was this like wide range of things that gave me so much more of a canvas to paint on. And for me, at least early career ops roles were just not where I felt like I could best use my skills. I felt like I could be much more of a revenue driver through marketing early Mm -hmm. in my career. And then as I got more senior and I got more experience across functions of companies, it actually made me more qualified to take on an even larger operations role later when that gave me an even wider canvas to play with across the company. So yeah, I did a bit of marketing and then got into ops, but I, I do feel like that kind of background in accounting and finance made me capable in a way that maybe a traditional marketing background type person might not be as comfortable in a COO type role. Oh my God. I'm so glad I asked that question because that's really interesting. I love how strategic you were about, you know, like early career ops, like that's not where I can make the impact. Let's do marketing and then pivot. So, so you ended up in the COO role at ConvertKit. What brought that change on? That seems like kind of a jump, but I imagine you had started taking on some of those operational things. I had. Yeah. So from the early days, uh, Nathan Berry was the founder of ConvertKit and I were friends for years before I joined the company. And we had kind of been in, we called it a mastermind group where Mm -hmm two of us and several other entrepreneurs met weekly for years talking about our businesses, our problems, like what we were trying to achieve through our businesses. And so I'd always kind of been like a peer mentor to Nathan as he had been for me. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to step into the company with a lot of background and just a lot of knowledge of what went on there, even though I had never been working at the company to that point. So I felt like from the early days, he kind of leaned on me and we leaned on each other to help define the mission, vision, and values and like really put words to the belief system he had been instilling in the company early on. We talked about kind of the brand strategy, who we were going to be, setting the vision and strategy. And so even when it wasn't my job, I was doing some of the things and partnering on some of the things that would end up being my job later. So that kind Mm -hmm. of laid the groundwork. But to get to the heart of your question, the impetus for the change was that I was ready to grow. And I went out looking for new opportunities. And a mentor of mine offered me a job to go to work for him and uh, and move to New York. And I actually took it. And I let Nathan know. And we ended up having a conversation about me having an expanded role, playing a role across the entire business as COO. And that ended up being enough of an incentive to stick around for several more years, almost almost four more years after that. Oh, wow. I mean, I love that you stuck around so long afterwards that it really was, it sounds like, you know, the right opportunity and not just like a Band-Aid for a few more months yeah. as those things so yeah, often yeah, are. Totally. So, 
Yeah, you can tell you really partnered on that. Well, you gave me the perfect opening to ask because you brought up Nathan. And so I, I think I remember seeing on your Twitter um, that you've talked about working, how the two of you worked on your relationship like it was a marriage. So what did that look like in practice? Uh, a lot like therapy at times, honestly. <laughs> we, um, yeah. One of our secret weapons for our executive team was we worked with a great coaching company called Reboot, founded by a guy named Jerry Colonna. For anyone that wants to have a very high career trajectory, um, I would definitely recommend his book by the same name of Reboot. We hired them to come in and do executive coaching with each of our execs across the team. We spent about $12,000 a month on coaching for our executive team because we found it to be a foundational practice, both individually and then in groups at times when there needed to be conflict resolved. So Nathan and I both did individual coaching, which is like business counseling. And honestly, a lot of times focuses on our emotional responses to the facts of business. And then at times we would do a series of joint coaching where we would get together and say, look, we have this fundamental difference that we're working through right now. Like, let's get into it. And it really gave us some, you know, there's this kind of attachment theory of relationships, especially with people we love and that we rely on for our sense of self-worth, our sense of belonging, our sense of um, well-being. And in those relationships, we have conflict patterns. Mm -hmm. And so much like a marriage, I think business partnerships can very much have those conflict patterns because they are attachments. You have financial interests that are inevitably tied to one another. You have emotional experiences day in and day out together. And so we very much approach it in a similar fashion. It's not the same to counseling, I wouldn't say outside of work, but a very similar process in terms of identifying our patterns, working through those and developing tools for addressing them without needing outside help over time. So that was one of our big tools. And then over time, we just got better and better at leaning into the discomfort of saying Mm -hmm. like, Hey, here's what I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling super angry and frustrated in this conversation. I just need to air that out so that we can get into like the meat of the thing. Yeah. Um, And some of those practices and like the ability to hit pause long enough to verbalize the thing that might've been going on in our bodies that we might've been feeling just about the way a conversation was going allowed us to address the surface level thing and then say, okay, understood. Now let's go talk about the thing that was causing that. Um, yeah. And that ended up being really productive over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you talk about coaching so much how the way I thought about it, where, you know, after I started doing it for a little bit in my last role, I was like, oh, this really is like therapy. And, you know, and then sometimes you hit that yeah. button, you're like, okay, this is, a, I'll, I'll save this for actual therapy, but this is really helpful, you know? And, right. um, and it definitely, I think the best executive teams I've been on are the ones where I can be like, okay, and I'm getting really worked up right now and I just need a minute, but, you know, I'm going to keep going. You know, like when you can name that, it goes so much further to build that relationship. So, yeah, it, it sounds like ConvertKit. And the executive team in particular really invested in that, which is so great to see. That's a big line item on a on a bootstrap budget. So we had a very strong perspective though that I don't think work should or can fix people. Um, I think people have to fix themselves to the degree that they want to. Mm -hmm. And there are very, very strong crossovers between trauma, attachments in our lives, emotions we experience in our lives outside of work. All of that stuff shows up at work too. And you might not talk about it in the same depth or in the same way that you would with someone that you were in love with or in partnership with outside of work, Mm -hmm. but you do have to be able to acknowledge it, see it, address it and work with it at work because these same exact emotions will show up in both places for similar reasons or triggers. And if you're not working on that, and like you said, I thought you made a great point, identifying it maybe in coaching. And sometimes it bridges like, okay, I got to go talk in counseling about that. But the learnings cross over entirely. Absolutely. There are things I learned at work that I apply to my marriage now. And there are plenty of 
things I learned in marriage counseling, which my wife and I have done since the day we got married that apply in work. And so I think it goes both ways and they're both really healthy practices. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so um, obviously y'all had a very close relationship as you work together in the COO role. What did you find that you liked most about being in that role? I think the number one thing I loved was the breadth of all the, the functions in the company. We had engineering, product, operations, marketing, and customer success were kind of the five core functions at ConvertKit and everything but product reported into me. So I got to lead oh, wow. engineering, marketing, customer success, ops, and data actually, which was separate from ops. And so on any given day, you know, I might be talking about everything from challenges, building out a feature that we're supposed to deliver for the product team to, you know, conversion optimization and ad campaigns to how to get more efficient in our outsourced customer service function to like our data infrastructure and all of that. And like all of that could just be literally one day. And I found that that really stretched my mind. It caused me to have to grow a lot to be able to serve all of those different functions. I learned a lot about things like technical infrastructure behind the scenes that allowed the app to run and that allowed us to serve our customers. And so like, I just thrive on that variety basically. And I think being able to jump into anything and the challenge of needing to be well-informed enough to be productive in a conversation, but also humble enough to be able to say like, I don't get this. Can you slow down and explain it to me so that I can be useful here? Yeah. Um, really giving this great balance of like diving in, but also I'm not supposed to be the expert in any conversation. Really my main role is ask good questions, provide global business insight to a given conversation and then allow people to go do their jobs. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like the perfect definition of a generalist right there. Generalist that, you know, there's so much overlap between being a great generalist and I think being in an ops role. And a lot of times, especially when you're overseeing that many departments, I have to say, I've talked to a lot of like operations leaders um, who oversee a, a lot of different things. You don't usually see engineering under operations. And so it doesn't sound like you had an engineering background. And I think in particular, that one tends to be siloed off, especially at a startup. So I would love to just hear more about how that happened and I guess if there were any other challenges around that. There's a great book called Riding Shotgun by a couple of former professors from Georgia State University. And it talks about the many different models for introducing a COO role to a company. Mm -hmm. And one of the main premises of the book is that every COO role is completely contingent on the CEO that they're partnered with. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of what we tried to do was specifically to design for where could Nathan be at his best where did he want to be working in the business day to day? And how could we split those duties up in a way that served both of us? So I think in the, the case of engineering, he wasn't an engine, he didn't have an engineering background, although he does have front end coding skills, deep design skills. So there was more overlap for him than me. But I was also excited about the challenge. I was very close to our engineering leader at the time. And that's like a big part of what I think allowed me to succeed was we had fantastic engineering leaders. Okay. So we had two while I was in the role of COO. The first one, uh, his name was Grant. Very, very technical, deep background in infrastructure, like really understood how the app was built, why it was built that way, how we needed to deliver. And then our second, our, our VP of engineering was named Sarah. She came from MailChimp. She had a great people management background, really understood organizational design, was able to get into any given conversation. Also not as an engineer by background, but a an excellent engineering leader by background. Oh, okay. And so... I think having those people in place was the first big thing. The second big thing was me being up for the challenge. And then the third was just like, that was all by design to set Nathan up to do the things that only he could do as our CEO. Wow. Okay. Well, so, you know, we talked about 
the the breadth of the role and that being the thing you really liked. On the flip side, what was the thing that or I guess I'm using past tense here, but you're still CEO. So I guess what's the thing yeah, you yeah. find most challenging about the role? Well, I think COO roles vary greatly from company to company. And I think a lot of what I didn't like I'm trying to solve for in this new role. So that may be even a good way to frame it. Yeah. Um, the first one was that at ConvertKit, we worked remotely. I've been working remotely for almost 10 years, a little over 10 years now. And frankly, I'm pretty tired of it. And I'm interested <laughs> to see if in you know five, eight, 10 years, if we see a little bit of a swing back away from mm-hmm. remote work, just based on my personal experience, which is that it gets really old being at home every day for 10 years. Um, yeah. Just like plugging away, working super hard and never getting that people interaction. So for me, that was one of them. Um, I actually did not enjoy the remote work aspect of the work by the time that I left. And that's just largely driven by um, an ambivert. I like Mm -hmm. my in-person time. I'm very good at reading people's body language and emotion. It's one of the things that I really put to use and helping manage conflict and get to good resolutions of problems in businesses. That's harder online. It's a lot more taxing to try and pick up on how people are doing without being in a room. Mm-hmm. And then just like the joy of celebrating, you know, when you're working super hard, trying to scale a company, there's just a lot less fun when it's like you log off and then you're at home alone. That's it. Yeah. So that was a big part. The second thing was I got a little burned out on software. Like I think software can do a lot to make the world better. Mm -hmm. And also the fundamental things we experience, even working remotely every day, our physical, our furniture, what we eat, what we consume, what we drive, like all of where we live. And I think we need a lot more smart and talented people working in the world, the physical realm world of like building things that are sustainable, that are healthy, that are thoughtful and applying technology to those spaces in a way that allow them to scale, that allow them to be profitable. So that was another one was I was a little kind of like burnt out on the idea of software as the end all be all of all of our problems. Yeah. And then third is it's hard being in a role. Uh, Mm -hmm. we, We grew revenue 25 million. We grew the team from when I got there, we were like, I was number 17. We grew it to a little over 70 and we did it all bootstrapped. And so that was very, very, very challenging, Yeah, especially the bootstrap part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the there's a beauty and a curse to being bootstrapped. One of which is that the owners get to make all of the financial decisions about where money goes, which is beautiful. And the curse is you have a lot more limitations than a funded business whose mandate is very clearly to grow, 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 grow. And so I I think in the end, like that conflict over how much we wanted to grow, Mm -hmm. what our ambitions were over the long term, I just think there was a little bit of a a conflict over like what I was hoping for and what I really believed we were capable of and what I wanted to do in the world and what Nathan and as the primary owner was Mm -hmm. excited about. And and that's okay. You know, I think Mm -hmm. the way I put it at the time was that we were like consciously uncoupling or trying to go out at the peak of our relationship rather than writing it down the backside of it when we already knew that we had diverging ideas about the future. Yeah. um, And such a great way of approaching that. I've spent, I think, almost my entire career at bootstrap companies. And it's, yeah, it's definitely hard in its own. And going from 17 to 70 in just a couple of years is a lot for a bootstrap company. I was trying to think if I have encountered another one that's done something like that. And I yeah, can't imagine. So love the the conscience on company there. And I feel like you gave me the perfect segue here, which, you know, I think I think I've followed you on Twitter for a while. But I think one of the things that really got me to like dive into your background and learn more about you was that last August, you announced that you were retiring as COO of ConvertKit and started a pretty public job search 
um, shortly thereafter. And I love when people do this, but I don't see a lot of non-engineers do it. And I don't see a lot of people approach it with such a thoughtfulness and intention. You built this whole page on your website that was called a request for opportunities. Um, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes so everybody else can see it as an example, because I think more people should do this. But um, I just would love to basically start the conversation about this, about asking you, you know, how did you decide to approach your job search that way as you were leaving ConvertKit? Well, the first thing is that I was in a huge position of privilege. We, this is pretty widely known. And Nathan's talked about it publicly too. We did a, a decent sized secondary sale of stock for employees at ConvertKit who had mm-hmm. owned stock for some time or had stock options, I should say. Mm-hmm. And I participated in that. And that gave me the flexibility to work without income for up to a year uh, was what my wife and I planned on. So I'll just start with that is a massive lever for finding the right thing that most people are not afforded. So yeah. that was an unfair advantage. The second thing I'll say is we valued at ConvertKit. I value personally working in public. I value Mm -hmm. talking about therapy in public. I value talking about numbers in public. I value talking about the emotional hardship of relationships at work in public because I find that most people think they are the weird ones. They are the ones with the unique problems that they have. They are the only ones to experience anxiety or fear or whatever it might be related to work or otherwise. And that the more we talk about it, the more it normalizes just like life being challenging and that the beauty of life comes in the peaks in between the hardships. Yeah. Absolutely. And without that, it just ends up feeling like we're lonely and like, you know, going crazy on our own. And so uh, a big part of it for me was being public about it. Most execs that you see leave a role hole up on their own. They Mm -hmm. like call in favors from their network. They never talk about why they left or what they're looking for. And I think it is really discouraging, especially to earlier career folks where it's like, how do they do that? Agreed. (laughs) And I did, I wanted to be the opposite of that. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to be public. I also wanted to have a tool for generating opportunities that I might not have access to on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, Another aspect of remote work, working at a bootstrap startup outside of the Silicon Valley ecosystem is the network is just not nearly as strong. Yeah, I worked my tail off to help us recruit a great executive and general team at ConvertKit. And that was a very much a team effort. But outside of like, I leveraged my entire network to get us an incredible team at ConvertKit. And so like, I didn't have a lot of connections outside of that, that I could rely on, especially in the tech ecosystem. So I wanted to generate opportunities. And I also wanted something to point to. Like, I didn't think of that post as this is going to create the opportunity I end up taking. I thought of that post as this is the thing I can send someone. So I can send a three sentence email instead of a four paragraph email. And if they want to read more and it's intriguing to them, great, they'll reach out. Mm -hmm. So those were kind of like my high level goals there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. I've had um, some people reach out with like the the Google doc versions of it, but I love your build in public version. Right. So I guess to get into some tactical follow-up questions, how did you decide what to include on the page? Um, Well, one of the, the things that will probably surprise most people is how forthright I was about my weaknesses on the page. Yeah. And one of the things that I find is in things like reference calls for candidates or interviews or just any working relationship at the outset, well, even mm-hmm. relationship period, people are not very forthright about their weaknesses. They're like little landmines you got to find out about later. <laughs> yeah. And I would way rather walk into a situation being very forthright about my goals and very forthright about about my weaknesses, because you're going to hire me for all the other stuff, the strengths, the background, the experience, like, of course, you're going to get into that. 
but I want to know that you're accepting me for my weaknesses, knowing that I'm it's still my job to work on those and that we are aligned on vision. So those were two of my big things that I wanted to make sure to include there. And then the rest of it was very much geared towards helping people understand whether I might be the right fit for them. Okay. What would they need to know about me based on my experience, my interests, what I'm looking for to help them gauge whether they should reach out to me. That was, it, it was like a sales page. Yeah. Sales page for Barrett. It absolutely was. It was great. <laughs> so what kind of response did you expect and what kind did you get? The very specific response I was hoping for was from a relatively small and obscure set of climate tech founders mm-hmm. um, who are starting some of the most interesting companies that I think will kind of define the climate movement over the next couple of decades. Mm-hmm. I did not get that response. I am not surprised that I did not get that response because I do not have the background for those roles. Okay. But what it gave me the opportunity to do is reach out to those folks and link to it, first of mm-hmm. all. Secondly, to have been public about it as I started writing and sharing about climate tech to build more of a reputation there. It often was something people landed back on mm-hmm. from reading something else I had done, either from my Twitter feed or from my blog. And that gave me much more warm conversations to kick things off with than if it had just been kind of like a cold, who is this guy type thing. Yeah. So the response was way lower. I was very disappointed by that. I mean, very self, self-conscious about my lack of connections and, and honestly, my lack of ability to get direct response from founders where I felt like there was this idea that there was this mass resignation event happening. Great talent was hard to find. Climate yeah. tech companies are like at the earliest stages of trying to figure out their shit. And I couldn't get a call back. I was like, okay, what's going on? Yeah. And my response to that was basically to put my head down and say, what is likely the case is one of two things. One, they're busy mm-hmm. and they got a thousand things coming at them. And I just am another person. And two, I don't have a background at three climate tech companies where it's like that guy, that's the guy I need right now. Yeah. And so I knew if I went and built more of a reputation in this space, it would serve me even better over time. So I just like, rather than getting all, you know, in my feelings and worried about it, I just went back to work basically knowing that I had set aside plenty of time. Yeah, absolutely. And such a, I'm going to say an operationally uh, minded way approach of like, no, I'm going to problem solve this and I'm going to make a plan and I'm going to execute it, you know, like I'm going to build that reputation and that, that experience. So, you know, you already said earlier that you ultimately decided to join Good Coffee, you you know, it's a Portland-based coffee company, a COO. You described this online as the most self-surprising career move you've ever made. So uh, tell us a little bit about why you were so surprised with yourself in this move. I mean, in some ways, like my wife would tell you that it wasn't that surprising. And so it's always interesting to have that kind of life partner be able to reflect back to you things about yourself you can't always see. But I had very much centered my work since leaving ConvertKit and my kind of search for either a company to start or a company to join on solving climate change and making that my next kind of chapter of my career. And so that was the first thing that was surprising was that this other thing that I couldn't have expected ended up coming my way and felt right to me. So the way that developed was uh, the two brothers who are the founders of Good Coffee are also longtime friends of mine. I've known them for years. We had kind of, the CEO and I had been kind of like meeting in a business roundtable kind of way, Mm -hmm. just like chatting about what's hard about scaling companies and very similar actually to how I met Nathan. I was going to say, I feel like you're writing an ad for Opsy for me of like, and this is why you need a community of of like-minded professionals. Yeah, It's just so hard to know. I had known Nathan for so many years before I joined Tim and I had known Sam for so many years before I joined Good. You can't engineer that overnight. And so whatever... 
like long-term opportunities you want to create, you know, you don't go in building relationships with that in mind, but certainly strategically you look at where do I want to be over time? Mm -hmm. Where do I think I might want to be and how can I start building out key relationships in that area so that if something becomes available, I am top of mind. Yeah. And that was the case here. So in February and March, I had planned to and did participate in on decks build for climate program, which was an mm-hmm. eight-week kind of idea accelerator program for people who were interested in founding climate tech companies. And Sam had approached me about joining good. And I had actually told Sam, like, look, I'm going through this accelerator. I've got a kid due in early May. My second kid is due in early oh May. Oh my God, any day now. Yeah, exactly. Um and I don't want to join a company and then make you pay me to be out on parental leave. Like, yeah. why don't we check back in in August after I figured out if I want to found a company and like had this kid. Mm-hmm. And I respected the living hell out of the way that he responded, which was he had like printed my email that I had set all of that in. We got together for coffee and he like, let me walk through my reasoning. He's like, that totally makes sense. Also, I think while you're going through this accelerator, you should do a trial run of COO at Good. <laughs> and no pressure, just go through an accelerator, do get a new COO role, get ready yeah, for the kids. Exactly. Like, you know. And you know, he asked me how much time I was going to be spending on the accelerator. And it uh-huh. was about half half my time each week. And so I did have a couple of days available, although I intended to be writing during that time. <laughs> yeah. And so the pitch made sense to me. It was like, yeah, I should not imagine one path while actively exploring the other. It would be great to actively explore both. Yeah. And so February, March, I went through the accelerator. March, I did two days a week as COO at Good. And what I found was that on balance for my priorities in this chapter of life of having two young kids, wanting to be present in their lives, Mm -hmm. being in a fortunate financial place where I can take a little bit more risk. And then also the things that I wanted deeply at ConvertKit of not being remote, maybe making something physical in the world. Those things were showing up at Good. And as we talked about me joining, I said, listen, this is looking interesting to me. And one of the things I really would want to make a priority of mine over the next five years is to make good carbon negative as a brand. Would that be something you're open to? And so creating kind of like a slice of my work that would be aligned to all of the research and learning I had been doing. And they were not just open to it. They were super excited about it. And so I think that was the other thing that made me excited was, okay, I might not be able to like make it a technological breakthrough that fuels a bunch of emissions drawdown, Mm -hmm. but we might be able to be an example for an industry that is going to need a lot of work, just like every industry is. Absolutely. And that in and of itself can be a very meaningful contribution, even if it's not like global scale contribution, which is something I really struggle with. Sometimes I'm like Atlas and I'm going to, I got to change the whole world. And instead it's like, okay, I'm going to take my slice and I'm going to try and do a really good job of it. So that was kind of how I ended up there. I think I struggle and I'm sure a lot of us do with that whole like zooming in, zooming out thing. And, you know, it's so easy to get distracted by like everything pressing down on you and all the things we should be worried about and thinking about. And then at the end of the day, it's like, okay, I just want to build a great place to work for people who can like give back in their community and then like be present in their lives. Right. And like, it's yeah. that ripple effect. So yeah, love how you were able to bring up the the carbon negative thing to them and and to carve that out. So I guess I was going to ask about that because I, again, had obviously I've talked to you online. I have a lot of follow-up questions about the things you put out there. Great so. podcast host. <laughs> yeah. So obviously like that's going to be one of your big projects. I would love to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, I know it's super early days, but like, how are you thinking about even starting to crack that nut? It's a really big one in the coffee industry. It is a really big one. You know, so any effective movement towards going carbon negative for a brand starts with where are we? Where are the problems right now? 
And so that's going to be step one. My goal is by the end of this calendar year, we're in 2022 right now to define, here's our footprint. And I think probably carbon footprints for companies are defined in scope one, two, and three uh, emissions. Scope one emissions are the direct result of what you do and how you make money. Mm-hmm. Scope two emissions are kind of like the ancillary effects of that. So I'll get it wrong if I go too far into it. So I'll just leave it at that for now. Okay. And then scope three is like the emissions of all of the suppliers and downstream companies that you work with. And so in order of importance, like scope one is for sure the thing you need to address first. I think most brands don't go right at the heart of the problem, uh, to put it kindly. Um, yeah they kind of like try and dance around the actual problem. So for us, the scope one stuff is going to look like the roasting of our coffee beans. Like that is a very, very natural gas intensive process with lots of emissions. So we're going to need to look at that very closely. It's in the products that we sell, especially milk. Milk is a very big contributor to emissions um, just because cows are. Our electricity, heating and cooling in all of our retail locations will be another big aspect of it. And so, you know, you can start to like see the ops mind go into effect here, but basically the goal is define the line items in order of importance. And then we need to start to translate that to what will it cost us to eliminate that? Well, And is it possible to eliminate it? So something like coffee roasting, is there an alternative to gas-fueled coffee roasting? Well, there may not be right now. And so Uh that might be a thing we have to find high-quality offsets to get rid of. Whereas something like milk, if we're just serving uh, conventionally raised cow milk right now, we could go to something at minimum from a company, local company like Neutral here based in Portland, where... Mm -hmm. They're all grass-fed cows. Their operations are uh, carbon neutral. And when they come into our supply chain, we're starting from zero, basically. Yeah. So things like that is what we'll be looking at. Yeah. No. Okay. And like my mind, again, went to the operational mind of like all the line items. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it sounds like a fun project and obviously a very meaningful one. So what else are you looking forward to working on it? Good. Uh, There's been so much. This is going to sound so weird for the like point in history that we're at, but like commuting to an office every day has been amazing. We'll see how I feel in a couple of years, but so far I have like 25 minute drive each way. We're Mm. about 20 minutes outside of Portland in a little city called Trotdale. Um, It's kind of the entrance to the Columbia River Gorge, like to kind of see the river, just be in this like little, little small town right outside of Portland, but still close enough that it's super easy. That's been really fun getting to hear, see, feel, watch the coffee uh, being roasted, coming in the door. All of that's been awesome. Our roastery and our HQ are, are in the same place and we have a cafe attached oh, to that. Very fun. So just like the environment is, yeah. is very inspiring to me from that angle. And then the problems are super interesting. Good is at a scale that is very similar to ConvertKit. When I started, mm-hmm. we have about 25 total team members, mostly in our retail stores, a few in our roastery, and then a couple of execs. Uh, similar revenue scale. The problems today are very simple in definition, but not always in solution. And so for me, like having scaled something at this point, you know, not to astronomical heights, but to decent size, it's like, yeah, decent size. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Well, you know, some people would say like hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue is real. Yeah. yeah, I feel (laughs) you. So, you know, right now it's like, it's the problem assessment. It's where are the opportunities for us to make the biggest difference and to get more efficient. So an example of an interesting problem I'm working on right now is all of our wholesale business 
has run through either text message or emails to our CEO up to now. Oh, wow. That's how people place their orders. That stresses me out just thinking about the unread text on this person's phone. (laughs) And, you know, he's just been, he's been grinding for seven years. Like he's been doing everything. Totally. It totally makes sense that that's how it runs. But I'm like, Sam, you don't have to do this. Like we can solve, we can solve (laughs) this. We can automate this. Uh, And of course he's pumped about that. And so it's things like, all right, let's go find a Shopify plugin app that works well to run our wholesale accounts through Mm -hmm. people an online ordering platform with specific pricing, build them immediately. Like all of that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um, can be automated. And it's those problems where they feel obvious as solutions to me that for a business at our scale is huge leverage for the business to continue to grow. Cause that will allow us to go from, you know, let's call it 20 wholesale accounts to 500 wholesale accounts and have it systematically work the same way all of our e-commerce operations do. Um, So it's things like that, that are really exciting to me. Yeah. I mean, and that's too where that like diversity of thought and experience comes in, right? Because like, you know, when you're one of 20 software guys, you're just another software guy. But when you're the guy who like sees all these automations, right? Like it's skyrocketing potential for the business. I was recently helping a bike shop who makes custom bikes here in Mexico City. And I was like, you're using paper receipts and then like taking a photo, like we can, we can fix this, right? Like we can automate this. We can. And it's great to be able to like be that person too. And that definitely gets me excited. So, you know, obviously you are a very growth minded person. um, And so I'd love to ask what advice would you give someone who is maybe in a mid-level head of director of ops or something like that and is looking to move into a more um, senior operations leadership role? It's a big question. I know. <laughs> it, it is a big question, but I do have thoughts on this. Um, the farther up, you know, the kind of ops totem pole you go, you know, totem pole is probably one of those phrases that like I'm going to eliminate from my vocabulary. I'll say the farther up the ops ladder you go. There you go. Um, yeah, I like that. To correct myself there. I'll just do a plug for like language awareness on, on that one. I think that just being aware of where phrases come from is been something I've really worked on over the past few years. But anyways, back to the story. The breadth of knowledge you need across areas of any given business grows very rapidly the further up the ladder you go. And so what I find for a lot of ops people um, who are kind of mid-career is that they'll typically have had one area of expertise, whether it's finance, people, you know, maybe even like some biz ops where they're kind of consulting across uh, groups in a company. And that's great. And you're going to need a lot more than that as you continue to grow. And so mm-hmm. I actually think biz ops people are often the ones with the best trajectory because they get to see all the different units uh, if they're positioned well. But my baseline advice would be regardless of what kind of vertical of ops you've been in, getting some rotational experience, even if you have to do it on your own time. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, let's say that you, you want to go from kind of like director of ops to COO level role. I would think about what business functions am I least comfortable with and how could I create space to show up in that function and help the team or the leadership or whatever in that function do their jobs better while not costing the business anything. So I'm doing it on my dime Mm -hmm. where maybe I'm going to the customer success team's weekly leadership meeting and my request to the leader there is just to be like an observer. I'm just there to listen to the kinds of of issues you deal with. And then if you have an insight and you can say like, hey, I heard y'all talking about this problem and I just had a few thoughts on ways you might improve on it. I just wanted to offer that up as something that might be helpful. I think those are really great ways for you to start getting your 
broadening your knowledge, getting to know a function a little bit better and improving your future ability to lead across functions. Mm -hmm. Um, So that would be one big aspect. And then I think just like really brushing up on your proficiency in different areas. I think when I think of like core ops functions, I think about accounting, finance, often people and data. Those are like the big, big ones. And for me, at least. And I data. Interesting. Any- okay. I really thought you were going to go to like legal facility, like security. Like those are ones I hear a lot after like the same list. And yep. then you took a pivot. So, da- I mean, I totally agree, but very interesting. Some of that stuff starts getting into like the blur between, you know, there's like ops, biz ops, and there's like ops admin. Yeah. And I think some of the like legal facilities, all that kind of thing can sometimes get into the admin space. And so there's like a range. And certainly you're hearing my bias in terms of where I've been and the other range would be equally valid too. But just thinking like, okay, you know, where are my strengths? How can I emphasize those even more? And so let's say you're like an Excel master, just like many people are in the ops world. Well, are you like, could you level up there? Could you (laughs) be even better? Could you get more comfortable with things like financial modeling and other aspects that you're really going to need as you continue to grow? And so really looking at where are your strengths? how, How could you double down on them? And then where are skill-based weaknesses? So I, I think about that differently than like personality or uh, talent-based weaknesses where okay. we all have like basic psychological background makeup that brings us to work in a certain kind of package. And mm-hmm. there's some weaknesses that you should just steer clear of. You should try and avoid interacting with those weaknesses as much as possible. And that's the best strategy. So you can double down on your strengths, but skills-based weaknesses are is just learning you haven't done yet. And so let's say you have like a really great background in people ops, but you want to be a COO level leader in the future, you're going to need some finance and accounting. And so it might make sense to think about going to get an MBA or doing some night classes or online classes to get more comfortable with reading financial statements, building financial statements, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I'd look at it as like almost a skills matrix, just like you would build for a people organization and say, all right, if I were designing a skills matrix for the role that I want, what are the skills that I can't check the box on right now? And which ones can I reasonably build to help me get where I'm trying to go? Yeah, absolutely. I tell people all the time, I'm like, you should look up the job descriptions of the job you want and then like see what requirements you don't have. And I also love this advice because it's advice you took yourself, right? It sounds like what you did really as you were looking for your new role. So, okay, well, on the flip side of it, again, I'm I'm sure as a growth-minded person, you already have a list in your head, but what are you working on this year that you'd like advice on? What are you trying to get better at? Um, I think right now, the biggest thing is is just industry expertise. So I'm Mm. in a completely new space. I have not worked in a physical products business before. I have not worked in coffee before. And so really it's building expertise there to understand what's the baseline kind of industry expectation for things like profit margins, growth rates, uh, what does it cost in cash outlay to build a new retail store? How much lead time do you need on signing a lease before you can be live in a space and making money from it? If we wanted to stay self-funded, how many stores could we fuel, uh, could we fund on our own? What are the yeah. other levers we could pull there in terms of lines of credit, debt, equity financing? So really taking like everything I've learned in ops and applying it very specifically to the coffee industry and what the industry generally accepts as true so far and finding the places where first principles thinking would say, well, I understand why the industry says that, but that doesn't have to be that way. And so let's figure out if we can actually make that a competitive advantage of ours. So that's a lot of the learning I'm doing right now is 
let me do my homework and make sure that I am aware of what this industry runs on, how it operates, what it looks like to be successful before I start making assertions about, oh, we can blow that out of the water and we can go make it happen so much better than all those other people. Because often industries are the way they are for a reason. And then sometimes there's like 10% of it where there's absolutely no reason and that's where you can win. And so that's kind of the search I'm on right now is what is that 10%? Yeah, yeah, you got to learn the rules to break the rules or whatever they exactly, say. Right. I feel like that was definitely my HR, like people ops journey where I was like, okay, let me learn all this HR stuff and then figure out like, I object to the fact that you're teaching me how to union bust, but I will learn it and then right. <laughs> we'll do it differently, right? Well, it has been so great chatting with you today. Thanks so much for taking the time and really excited to follow good and everything else that you're going to be up to in the climate tech space. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to Opsy. You can find resources and links from this episode in the show notes at opsy.org. And while you're there, I hope you'll take a second to join our free community, where we share resources and opportunities that help us all level up in our ops careers. Again, that link is opsy.org. Until next time, stay opsy, friends.